0: Open up in your Bibles, my good recording, everything's good, to two places, Exodus chapter 40 and Numbers chapter 1, Exodus chapter 40 and Numbers chapter 1. Uh, If you didn't get, there's some on the table, some outlines of the book of Numbers, Uh, if you need to get one, we'll get one to you, we had them just circulating, Uh, we're moving on, we've started a a, a book by book study of the Bible, just laying out the books of the Bible, and uh, I was doing good, and then I came to the book of Numbers, and even though it's not the longest book of the Bible, and even though we've done longer books, I just could not get everything I wanted to say into one night, and rather than like shortchange it, uh, I'm going to split this and do this. This is Numbers Part 1, uh, so we'll do like the first half of the book of Numbers tonight, and then in a couple of weeks, we'll do... Uh, the second half, I am aimlessly flipping through pages and don't even know where I'm going. Uh, Exodus chapter 40. So some vital statistics for the book of Numbers. There are 36 chapters. There are 1,288 verses. And there are 32,896 words. Um, It is a book of warfare. It is the book of numbering for warfare. It is getting people ready to fight "...for the promised land." It is a great book that has tremendous correlation and tremendous application to a Christian right now. If you want a place of blessing in your life, if you're looking to get to a place of victory and overcome something in your life, the study of the book of Numbers is going to be a great study. That's kind of I wanted to slow down a little bit because I think we'd all like a little more victory in our lives, our personal lives, our church's lives, our, our families' lives and the book of Numbers has a lot of those keys to that success of being an overcomer. It's the fourth book of Moses, fourth book of your Bible, it's the book of numbering for war. So just breaking down some of the books we've looked at so far. So the book of Genesis showed us man getting ruined, right? It was the book of beginnings where people were just left separated from God and driven out. But these next three books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they really show us three different perspectives of God dealing with fallen man. So if you're a sinner, say amen. Amen. Okay, I'm in the right library, all right? Some of you were quiet. I'm going to preach at you later. But anyway, right, so God deals. After man was ruined and Genesis leaves us in a coffin in Egypt, Right, that's a picture we talked about, now Exodus is about man being redeemed. That's the first thing God wants to do with us. Man is redeemed. And Exodus, as we said, is about that exodus or that escape of Egypt, out of Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, what we see is God's way. What is God's way? For the lost and for the saved. How does he deal with you in salvation? That's the first part of the book. And how does he deal with you once you are saved? That's the Second part of the book, salvation and sanctification. That's God's way, we're we right. Okay. Um, second thing, Leviticus was the book about man worshiping. So once you get redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Exodus, God wants you to worship Him. God wants you to approach to Him. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. So in the book of Leviticus, we see a book about people that have access. It was a book about the priesthood. So what do we see in the book of Leviticus? We see God's work. What were the Old Testament priests supposed to do? And what are you as a New Testament believer priest supposed to do? How do you serve God now? How do you approach God now? How do you worship God now? Remember the emphasis on holiness. And now we get to the book of Numbers. Numbers is about man serving. It's about people getting numbered for war. So Exodus is God's way, Leviticus is God's work, and Numbers is God's war, right? It's about getting people ready and numbering people for war. And you'll find something in the book of Exodus that you see in the people of God. Some people want to fight, and some people want to flight. Because, right, when you get confronted with something, they say you've got a fight or flight reflex, right? And God says, we're going into battle, kids. You've been saved, and now we're heading into a war in the wilderness. And some Christians dig their heels in, get into this book, and they're ready to fight. And a lot of believers, a lot of professing believers, just are ready to take off and just go sit somewhere and and take up space so if you're sitting here tonight and you're sitting at home i love you right if you're sitting here tonight i'm hoping you're one of those christians that want to fight for all god has for you because the book of numbers is really all about that there's three ways to really interpret the book of numbers and really three ways to interpret everything in your bible historical doctrinal and inspirational. So what's the historical look of the book of Numbers? Well, historically, it is about Israel in the wilderness getting ready for the promised land. Look at Exodus chapter 40. I'll show you the timing of the book of Numbers. Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. Please notice that the tabernacle was reared up in what month? The first month of the second year that they'd come out of Egypt. Okay? Now go to Numbers chapter 1. And look at verse 1. Numbers 1-1. Numbers 1-1. Ready? Numbers 1-1. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation, on the first day of the... Second month in the second year after they would come out of the land of Egypt. So the timing of this book is one month after they reared up the tabernacle. So one month after the book of Exodus, so to speak, right? Exodus, they get all the instructions. At the end of Exodus, they rear up the tabernacle. And one month later, God starts giving them the book of Numbers. They start getting ready to set out for war, set out to go into the wilderness and get to the promised land. Now, just so you know, if you want to write a verse down, Genesis chapter 15, verse 18 to 20. Genesis 15, 18 to 20. The promised land is not that little thing we call Israel. The promised land that God promised to God, Abraham's people goes from the River Nile to... All the way over to like Baghdad with the top at uh, Mount Ararat in Turkey. It is a huge triangle. That is a huge piece of real estate. God's land grant that they were going to take over was a lot bigger than that little piece of dirt where Eli grew up, which is a special place. But that's not all God had for them. God had a much bigger, from the river of Egypt, the Nile, all the way over to, over by Ur, the Chaldees, over by Baghdad, which is modern day Iraq all the way with a pinnacle up by Mount Ararat, right with with the ark rested in that seventh month. That triangle right there is the land grant that God promised the children of Abraham. Not a popular message today, because that chunk of land encompasses a lot of groups that would like to drive Israel into the sea. And God says, no, sorry, I'm going to drive you into the Valley of Megiddo, and that's how it's going to go. So that's the historical thing. That's what we're going to get. Now, doctrinally, I'll go to Revelation 12. Doctrinally, what does this teach us about God? What does the book of Numbers actually show us about God? Revelation 12. Because the Bible is given primarily for doctrine. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. So doctrinally, it's about Israel in the great tribulation waiting for Jesus Christ to come again and give them the land. For a thousand years, that land is going to have rest and Israel is going to come into those physical blessings that he had promised them. Remember the big picture? They're waiting for a literal kingdom on earth and that kingdom is going to come when the right king comes. And the book of Numbers gives us a people wandering and hiding in the wilderness waiting for the Messiah to come. Amen. Now, you're going to find when you read through the Old Testament, three events keep popping up and over and over again. Three events will repeat in the Old Testament over and over again. Tribulation, second coming, millennium. Tribulation, second coming, millennium. We see that picture, we'll see those pictures in the book of Numbers. But look at Revelation 12:6. I'll show you how this is a preview in the book of Numbers of what's in the future. Revelation 12, 6. The Bible says... And the woman, who is Israel, not Mary, okay? Israel is the one that has the 12 stars, right? Representing the 12 tribes. And the woman fled into the wilderness. The book of Numbers has the children of Israel in the wilderness. And where she hath a place prepared of God, right? Because the book of Numbers is about people preparing for war, prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days, which accounts to three and a half years, which is the number of and the length of the great tribulation, according to the scriptures, right? So we have a picture there of Israel in the wilderness waiting for Jesus Christ to come. Ironically, they're going to be fed. They're going to be fed in the future like they were fed in the past, by the way. They're going to get manna again. It says right there they're going to do it, but that's another study. So, And now, how do we take this inspirationally? Meaning, I get the historical, it's over and done. I get the doctrinal, it's maybe yet to happen. But what do we as Christians take away? I got so nervous, my voice cracked. What do we as Christians take away from this? Well, it teaches us about children of God that are willing and preparing to fight for a place of blessing in their lives. Because the promised land does not represent heaven. Okay, It's not heaven. Because when you get to heaven, there are no giants to fight. You don't get hungry you don't whine about being thirsty when you get to heaven okay but when you get to the promised land and on your way to the promised land there were giants to overcome there were battles to fight there was a land to divide so the promised land in the scriptures represents for you christian that place of blessing the place of victory that place of getting all god wants and has for you to be and if you want that can you say amen I hope you want to get all God wants for you to be, and all God wants you to be. That's what the Book of Numbers will show us. And the Bible says it's going to be a fight. How do I know that? First Timothy six twelve. Fight the good fight of faith. You've got to believe to be blessed. That's the lesson we learn from the Book of Numbers because they didn't believe, and they didn't get all God had for them that first generation because they didn't believe. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. See, I know that verse. Then you need to hear it again. Amen. Like I need to hear it again. Amen. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You know what the book of Numbers shows us for you Christians? When you stop trusting the promises, you will miss the promised land in your life. You've got to trust the promises. And of course, I'll just throw this at you. Jesus Christ is pictured as our brazen serpent, right? And we'll talk about that when we get to Numbers 21 next time. But he's pictured as our brazen serpent from which we get that great hymn, Look and Live, My Brother Live, Look to Jesus Now and Live. So let's go back to Numbers chapter 1. You see why I split this into two weeks? (laughs) Numbers chapter 1, okay? Numbers 1. Numbers 1. Look at verse uh, number 17. So, if you have your little paper there, and if not, I'll get you one, but if you have this outline, here's your outline of the book of Numbers, you could jot this down as headings in your Bible if you want, and uh, it's basically broken, and if you're watching on YouTube, it's in the comments, all right? right, It's like I said, I'm not a boomer, all right? Right, Christian? I'm not a boomer. Say it. No, I'm kidding. All right, so it breaks down really easily. Chapters 1 to 19... You have Israel going from Sinai to Kadesh. And then, chapters 20 to 36, you have Israel from Kadesh to Jordan. And in the first part, let's look at Numbers 1, verse 17. The Bible says And Moses and Aaron took these men, which are expressed by their names, and they assembled all the congregation. Uh, together on the first day of the second month and they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward by their poles as the Lord commanded Moses so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai so in that first chunk of the book it starts with all the males 20 and up getting numbered, why? for war so that's a challenging question If God was to number us, do you count? Because the people that fight were the ones that count. And God's looking for some people in this great book of Numbers starting off who are willing to fight. And please notice in verse 18, they had to declare their pedigree. They had to be real Hebrews. They had to be genuine Jews. You know why? Because not everybody that came out of Egypt was a Hebrew. Some of them just wanted to get off the ship before it sunk. And they followed Moses and some of those guys out there. But the people that were given the promised land were the ones who were the children of the promise. And God said, you need to make sure that you're one of mine if you are going on this journey and go on this fight. So the place of blessing we're talking about is not for people that are not saved. If you're not saved today, most of what I'm talking about tonight, and you at home, has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with you. You've got to make sure you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ before you go and start fighting for anything. And what you see in the book of Numbers in the first half is God is getting His people ready to move into that place of blessing. But what have we learned from the Bible? Whenever God moves, the devil moves to oppose Him. And so what you find is, as God is preparing His people for the promised land, say that three times fast, right, the devil is getting the land ready to reject and resist God's people. Because while the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, Guess what the devil was doing? He was raising up some giants to fill that land that would be there to resist and scare those Hebrews away once they crossed into the place. And you see, that's that's what happens. And the uh, book of uh, Numbers also gives us the route that Israel took in the Old Testament to get to the promised land and the route they're going to take in the future. So the book of Numbers is very instructive. Now, the second half, chapters 20 to 36, really has one big lesson for you. The closer you get to the promised land, the bigger the problems become. Because the second half of the book is got serpents, it's got a false prophet trying to curse them. It's got apostasy. What they go through in the second half is a lot worse than the first half because the closer you get to God, rest assured, listen up, gang, the closer you get to God, the closer you get to the devil. And the closer you get to God, the bigger the problems will become and the more resistance you'll start to feel because the devil does not want you to get to the place of blessing. So when resistance comes, fight. Don't flight. Fight. All right, And when God's people don't stand for God, God's people don't stand the chance. They get defeated. That's what we find out in the second half. So that's a little overview. You say, that's a lot of overview. Well, that was some overview. Now, let's go to Numbers chapter 2, and there's so many awesome pictures in the book of Numbers. I'm going to try to give you a bunch of them now. Buckle up. Here we go. Uh, First picture in the book of Numbers that we get from this first half. We're only going to get to chapter 14. I hope and pray, help me, Jesus. All right, Numbers two, verse thirty-three. Here's our first picture. Number one, first picture in the book of Numbers: the Levites don't fight. The Levites don't fight. You see, Numbers two, thirty-three. Then number in all these tribes, right? And in Numbers two, thirty-three, the Bible says, "But the Levites were not." numbered among the children of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. You say, why is that important? Because in the Old Testament, you fought for yourself. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ fights for you. So those Levites were a special group. That's where the priests came from. They came out of that tribe. They're indicative of you guys as believer priests. And guess what? You don't fight your own battles. Jesus Christ will fight your battles for you if you walk the way he tells you to walk look at Ephesians chapter 6 hold your place there let's just look at some things in the New Testament Ephesians is a book of warfare in the New Testament right? spiritual warfare and brethren if you want to get to the place of blessing don't charge hell with a squirt gun you need to get behind Jesus Christ don't get ahead of him you need to get behind him Right, right, don't start getting tough and start calling out the devil and stuff like that. You know why? Because you're going to wind up getting biffed over the top of the head. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, even the archangel Michael said, the Lord rebuked thee when contending with the devil. And in Ephesians six ten, he's given us his great passage on spiritual warfare. Amen. And he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The only way to win spiritual warfare is you got to lean on the Lord. You can't fight the battle in your own strength. You can't overcome in your own strength. You can't get to the place of blessing. You can't overcome the giants in your life by your own strength. You're doomed to fail. But Jesus Christ can slay the giants. Amen. The son of David can slay the giants, just like David slew the giants. So you got to get behind them. And in verse 13, it shows us, He gives us all this great armor, and then He says, Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore. You see, the Lord gives you armor and He just says, stand. In fact, the armor has no covering for your legs because you're supposed to be fighting the battles on your knees. You're supposed to fight these things in prayer and God will fight that battle for you. What did He tell Israel when Israel had their back against the wall, the Red Sea behind them, Pharaoh approaching them. You know what the Lord told Moses? The Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. So if you feel like the back is against the wall, guess what? Get down on your knees and start asking God to fight for you. And guess what? God will do what you have no strength to do. The Levites don't fight. Praise the Lord. I like that. I like that first picture. It's a good reminder. Let's go back to numbers now. So don't it doesn't mean you fight. Yes, there's some personal things you have to do. you got to read your Bible. you got to put your flesh away. But guess what? Jesus Christ is the one that's going to slay those giants. Numbers chapter 3. Picture number 2. The Levites are a replacement for the firstborn. The Levites are a replacement for the firstborn. Watch this. 3.12. 3.12. And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, watch this word, instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel, therefore the Levites shall be mine. Because all the firstborn are mine. For on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel. God says, I killed all of Egypt's firstborn, and I'm going to take you as my firstborn. Keep reading. Uh, both man and beast, mine shall they be. I am the Lord. So the Levites are that replacement. Now look at chapter 3, look at verse 39. I'll prove it to you that the Levites are a replacement. I'm going to prove it to you right here. Don't just take my word for it. Now look at 339. I'm not going to read this verse because it's a boring verse. You say, Can you say that? Yeah. It's a boring verse, right? The first probably four chapters of Numbers are pretty boring. I'm not going to lie, right? I'm not getting struck by lightning. I'm just being honest, all right? All right? But in 339, there are 22,000 Levites numbered. You could read the verse yourself. 22,000 Levites. That's another reason for the book of Numbers. It's the numbering also of the Levites. But if you go to verse 43, there were 22,000 273 firstborn males in Israel. So let's do some simple math. 22,000 Levites 22,273 males that got numbered. There were 273 that the Levites didn't cover. So if you read verses 44 to 48, you know what happens? Those 273 had to be redeemed by silver because the Levites, there weren't enough Levites. They didn't cover them because the Levites were supposed to replace the firstborn of Israel. There were 273 more, so God said, okay, you're going to have to give some silver now to redeem them because silver is always the price of redemption. You say, what are you saying, Pat? Read verse 45 with me. 45 take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle and the Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. God's plan was to take the Levites instead or in place of all of Israel's firstborn. You say why? Well, number one, here's why he chose the Levites to replace all the firstborn because he didn't want the priestly tribe to be polluted among the people. He wanted those people that were going to service his tabernacle to be special, to be separate unto God. That's one reason why he separated those people. Second reason, do you remember the story of the golden calf? Yes. Do you know which tribe sided with God? Amen. Levi. He comes down, he says, who is on the Lord's side? And all the sons of Levi stepped over. So another reason why God put a special ministry for the Levites was a repayment for their loyalty to God. When everybody was running around half buck naked and doing all that stuff around the golden calf, the Levites chose to stay on the Lord's side. So God said, I'm going to take the Levites and make them a special tribe unto me. And thirdly, the third reason why he picked the Levites to replace the firstborn, because it's a picture. It's a picture of the New Testament sons of God replacing all the fallen sons of God that fell with Lucifer. You do know that, right? That the sons of God being born again now are replacing the sons of God angels that fell with Lucifer. And probably when God hits that number, a thing's going to go off, click, and God's going to say, come up hither. That's going to be time up, all right? So keep giving out the gospel, and uh, God's definitely doing some replacing there. So go to Numbers chapter 8. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? But that's another lesson. Numbers 8. Like I said, these lessons are like buckshot. I'm throwing a lot of mud on the wall. Hopefully some of it sticks. Amen. Numbers 8, 14. You know what the Levites were? The Levites were the gift of God. See Numbers 8? Verse 14. Thus shalt thou separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that shall the Levites go in to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, and thou shalt cleanse them and offer them for an offering. For they are wholly given unto me from among the children of Israel. Instead of such as open every womb, even instead of the firstborn of all the children of Israel, have I taken them unto me. For all the firstborn of the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself, and I have taken the Levites for all the firstborn of the children of Israel, and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron, and to his sons from among the children of Israel to do the service of the children of Israel in the tabernacle of the congregation and to make an atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come nigh unto the sanctuary. The Levites are a gift of God to minister unto God just like Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus... Think about it. God says, I want all the firstborn." but I'm going to take this tribe and they're going to minister unto me and they're going to be a gift so a plague doesn't take out all your people. And that's what Jesus Christ is. He's a gift. John chapter 4, he tells that woman at the well, he says, if thou knewest the gift of God and Who it is, because the gift is a person. It's not a thing. It's a person. Who it is that saith to thee, give me drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So Jesus Christ is a gift of God, and the Levites were a gift of God. Why? To minister and make a way for the people to be spared from God's plague. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. So it's a little bit of a picture there. Go back to Numbers 4. Don't worry. I'm just warming up. Don't worry. I'm going to get into the meat here. Numbers 4. Now, I'm not going to look at any verses in Numbers 4, but you'll notice your heading on your outline for Numbers 4 is the special ministry of the Levites. And you'll see that there are three special families, I think we have them in our church, uh, that pack up all the stuff from the tabernacle, carry it out to the next spot, and then load it up again and redo it. And I think we got some Kohathites and Samarites and some Gershonites in our midst, because that's kind of like what we do. If you come here on a Sunday, we kind of walk in like this. We unpack all this stuff. We set it up. We have a service. God says, okay, move. Or the custodian says, move. And then we pack it all back up, and then we usher it out. But if you look at verse number 18, he mentions a family called the Kohathites. And if you look at verse number 22, he mentions the Gershonites, And if you look at verse 29, he mentions the family of Merari, the Merarites. Say that three times fast. But you know what? These three families are given really specific instructions about how to pack everything up and set everything up. You say, why? Because the tabernacle had to be done by the book. See, you serve God by the book. We serve God by the book. We don't just do things according to our own imaginations. God gave us specific instructions about how to minister, how to labor, how to serve. And you'd be wise to play inside the lines and not venture outside the lines when it comes to marriage, family, all sorts of things. God says do things the way I told you to do them. Now let's get to chapter 5 and now we jump into some good stuff. Chapter 5 gives us The water principle, or the water test. And as you look at verse 22, I'm going to have a drink of water. And you're all going to watch me. But in Numbers 5, God starts talking about, what if a guy gets jealous over his wife? And a spirit of jealousy comes upon him. How does he know if his wife has been unfaithful to him? All right? didn't have DNA testing uh, a couple of thousand years ago. So God said, you know what you're going to do is you're going to get this little cruise, you're going to get some sand from off the tabernacle floor, throw it in there, mix it with some water, and then that lady's going to drink it. And that water is going to reveal the truth. And brother, if you have an ounce of preach in you, you got the message right there. That water reveals the truth. The water of this book will expose the secret sins in your life or somebody else's life. That man who had that spirit of jealousy he had no way to figure out if his wife had been unfaithful. But you know what? He just had to get some water in her. And you know what happened? The truth would be made known. And if you want to see sin exposed in your life, in somebody else's life, break out the water and shine the light and you'll see if there's darkness or not. See how that person responds to the water. You understand? Uh, I'm not going to try to figure things out with my own devices. I'm going to throw out a verse, or I'm going to throw out a biblical principle, and I'm going to see if you swell up or not. I'm going to see how you respond. I'm going to see if it strengthens you or it rots you. You know, if if you're right with God, that Bible is going to be a blessing. If you're wrong with God, that Bible is going to be a blight. You're not gonna to want to hear it. It's gonna bother you. You know that when you're in amen. sin, doesn't the Bible bother you? Amen. Don't say "Amen" too loud, but you know what I'm saying. But when you're in sin, the Bible is a reproach to you. It like it's like that lady whose who would who, her thigh would swell and rot when the water went in. Hebrews chapter four verse thirteen. Just listen. Speaks about the word of God. Says neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. There ain't nobody hiding from this book. You can hide from me. You can hide from church. You could run away, but you can't run away from this Bible. One day, you're going to stand face to face with the one whose name is called the Word of God, Revelation 19, 13. The Bible, Jesus says, don't worry if you reject me. you got one that's going to judge you. The word that I've spoken, the same is going to judge you in the last day. In the book of Numbers chapter 5, you see a great principle. You want to find out some secrets in? You want to see the truth exposed? Get the water in there. And in verse 22, is our first Amen, Amen. That's where Eli gets it from. Right there, 522. The first use of, the first mention of the word Amen is Amen, Amen. So Eli is actually more biblical than all of us because he says it twice. All right? Amen, Amen. Right? Uh Numbers 522. And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> Now listen, man, the first mention of amen is about a woman having to let some bitter water into her life. And look, the Bible is full of bitter water. Some of this stuff is a bitter pill to swallow, but you would do well to let it in. Amen means, Lord, yes. Lord, make it so. Lord, yes it is. Lord, do it. And you know what? If you've got nothing wrong with God, if there's nothing between you and God, that person holds the water out to you, you shouldn't be afraid of that Bible. Amen, amen. Only if you're trying to hide something do you run away from the light. Cockroaches flee the light, right? But if someone who's he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. There should be no problem between you and the Bible unless you're trying to hide something. But the Bible will expose the truth all the time, all the time. Go to Numbers chapter 6. How are we doing so far, okay? Number 6. I want to hear, I want to hear amen, amen, all right? How are we doing? All right, now we got to get you on cue next time. All right, number six is the vow of the Nazarite, and what does that picture for us? It pictures someone who wants to be special for God. Anybody here want to be special for God? amen amen there we go Chris you're a good good student number six verse one it says and the Lord spake unto Moses saying speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them when either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite, Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord so somebody is chosen they're not forced somebody has said I want to dedicate myself to God And the vow of the Nazarite, if that's you today, and you're sitting here and something inside of you is like, you know what, I'd like to be special for God. I'd like to do something special for God. I'm going to give you three things right in the passage to help you be special for God. If you don't want to be special for God, you're probably not sitting here. So I'm just going to keep preaching. First thing you got to have is verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine. uh Uh-oh. And strong drink. And shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. If you want to be special for God, the first thing you need in this vow is a special separation you got to be willing. That's four of them. you gotta, you got to be able to separate yourself from things. You say, what is he telling them to separate from? The source of man's damnation. The vine tree. The vine tree is where even Adam were messing around that got man separated from the, from the fellowship with God. So God says, you want to be special for me? Separate from the source of all sin separate from the source of all iniquity. I mean, did you just read three and four with me? He's like, don't eat raisins, don't eat grapes, don't drink wine, don't drink grape juice. He says, stay, that's the only tree in all the Bible that God says, stay away from. And some of you can't get your mouth off of it. I don't understand that. I mean, God is just saying, stay away from the vine. You want to be special to me? He's saying, you want to be special? Stay away from stuff like that. Be separate, he's saying. Be separate. The second thing he says, before I get you all in trouble, the second thing he says in verse 5 is, I mean, but the question is if you want to be special. If you don't want to be special, then just... We'll have a burger at the next barbecue together. We'll have a great time. But if you want to be special for God, you got to put away the bottle if you're going to stop being a baby, right? You got to grow up a little bit, man. And the Bible says, separate from some things that are the source of all of man's problems. You realize every problem started at that tree. It all started at that tree. <laughs> their separation from God, their foolishness, their, their, all the devilment in the world right now came from that tree. God says, sober up and step away from the source of all iniquity. Get away from sin and the source of sin. That's number one, separation. You see why I picked only one week to do half of this? Right. Verse number five. All the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separated himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. Hey, you want to be special for God? You know what you need first? Separation from sin. And number two, you got to be willing to bear the shame. That Nazarite, you knew who a Nazarite was because he had long hair. First Corinthians 11 tells us, if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. For a guy to have long hair, according to the Bible, is a shame. Now God says, if you're going to be a Nazarite, you've got to be willing to bear the shame. When Samson walked around, everybody knew Samson was special and different and had vowed a vow to God because you looked at him and you saw his locks. But don't be afraid of the shame, brethren. If you're going to be special for God, there's going to be some shame that comes with it. People are not going to want to hang out with you. People are not going to want to talk to you. People are going to maybe distance themselves from you and say, oh, you're one of those crazy Bible thumpers. Don't run away from that. I'm not saying you're relishing that like a sadist, but embrace the fact that if you're bearing reproach for Him, it means God says you're in my special company. Not every Christian wants to bear that shame. They want to be undercover Christians, you know. Just show up on Sunday and sneak out under the cover of darkness, and then you know maybe just come back again on Christmas, maybe come back again around Easter, and that's about it because those are safe times to come to church. But you know you want to you want to bear some shame. I mean, there's, a, there's ways to bear some shame, right? we 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 out ourselves pretty fast when we stand out there? You don't have to just have a sign, but just live in godly, live in holy. You're going to bear some shame. Number three, verse six. Third thing you need: all the days that he separated himself unto the Lord. He shall come at no dead body. Say, you want to be special for God? Say amen again. Amen. Amen. Separate yourself, bear the shame, and sanctify yourself. Meaning, if the dead are going to defile you, stay away from them. The dead are the lost world. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. He says, that guy's going to come at no dead body. I know literally in the Old Testament that you wasn't allowed to be a corpse, right? When, uh, when, when Samson rents that, you know, he rents that, kills that lion, he was supposed to renew his vow, and he didn't, and a lot of people paid the price. But you know what? You're not going to run into any lions, but you might run into some people that are following the roaring lion. You might run into some lost people. You know what they're going to do? They're going to defile you. Come on. You hang out with the wrong crowd. They defile you. I'll say amen, amen for you. I know it's true. You know it's true. No, I'm going to be a light. No, you're not. The white glove is yet to whiten the mud into which it falls. I've tried hundreds of times. Drop the white glove into the mud, and the mud never gets whiter. The white glove just gets dirtier. I'll look into the camera. You won't be the exception. You're just going to prove the rule right? So God says, if you want to be special for me, stop trying to break the rules and just realize that associating with the wrong people is going to defile you. So go to chapter eight. Chapter eight is the dedication of the Levites. Here's another great picture. So now God, he's going to start them off. He's going to dedicate them and they're going to begin their ministry to God. You know where he starts? Verse one to three is where he starts. Numbers eight. And the Lord said, uh, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and say unto him, When thou lightest the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light over against the candlestick. And Aaron did so, he lighted the lamps thereof over against the candlestick, as the Lord commanded Moses. Can you please notice that when he dedicated the Levites, the first thing he did was he started with the light of the Holy Spirit of God. That candlestick represented the light of the Holy Spirit of God that burned with that oil that represents the Holy Spirit of God and that Spirit of Christ. And before he begins their whole ministry, he lights the candlesticks. Because before you begin any ministry or any service for God, you better make sure you're full of the Spirit of God and you're walking in the Spirit of God and you're following the light of the Holy Spirit of God or else you're going to stumble and make a mess of things. Because this chapter begins with the Holy Spirit of God. And you know when we meet? You know where we meet early on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock? Because we need the Holy Spirit of God to move in our midst. You know when we meet, some of us get here at 6.30 and pray before this Bible study? Because we need the Holy Spirit of God. You know when we have a prayer meeting on Tuesday nights that is just for prayer? We just pray, we read a little bit, we talk, we pray. Because we need the Holy Spirit of God. We need to get back to the old days of people beseeching God to do the work or the work's not going to get done because the machinery can keep on rolling. We can keep holding up the signs. We can keep pumping out the tracks. We can keep holding services and singing and doing all this stuff. But if the Holy Spirit's not in there, it's not going to work squat at the judgment seat of Christ. So we need to remember our reliance on God and prayer is God's way of sticking a thorn in your side by saying you need to keep humbling yourselves because the flesh is really ready to puff itself up. You need to humble yourself and say Lord move by your spirit. Lord come on we need you Lord. If you don't build the house they labor in vain that build it. I think we need that more than ever because it's the Laodicean church that left Jesus Christ on the outside and they were motoring right along. They were having their services. They probably had their big buildings and their estates and I I bet they were preaching the Bible, and maybe some good was getting done, and Jesus on the outside going, Hey, can I get back in there? You know, I'd we need to humble ourselves and say, Lord, except you do it, it ain't gonna get done. And that's how the dedication of the Levites began. And then the rest of the chapter, 5 to 26, is all the labor by the Holy Spirit. It starts with the light of the Holy Spirit, and then it tells you all the things they're gonna do. That's instructive. That says start with the Holy Spirit of God and the light he gives you and then everything else will take care of itself. I think it was Hudson Taylor. I love this thing he said, that great missionary to China. He said... <laughs> he revolutionized the way you say it. China. All right? But he said, do not have your concert first and then tune your instrument afterwards. Right? A lot of us go out and say, Lord, bless it. I just made a mess of things, but bless it. How about spending some time on a Sunday morning praying? We don't do prayer requests on Sunday morning when we come here. We just say a hello to each other, and we just start praying for the song service. We start praying for the uh, kids' class. We start praying for the knucklehead behind the pulpit. We just start praying that God would move because we want to remind ourselves and remind heaven we need God. Amen. And that's a great start right there. Go to chapter 9. Speaking of needing God to lead you, chapter 9 is about the cloud, the cloud and the, fi- the cloud a fiery pillar, right? The cloud by day and the fire by night. And in 920 it says, And so it was when the cloud was a few days upon the tabernacle, according to the commandment of the Lord, they abode in their tents, and according to the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. Wow! You know what it's saying right there? You want to get to the promised land? Say amen. 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 Say amen. 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 Right. That's, okay, excellent, Stephen. You don't move unless the Lord leads you. That's right there. They didn't move until God moved. They were never ahead of them, they were always behind them. They looked up there, they saw that pillar of smoke and cloud. When that thing moved, they moved. When that pillar of fire was there at night, if it moved, they moved. Right, They followed it. That's a great lesson. Now know what in Numbers chapter 10. Numbers chapter 10 is the two trumpets. Amen. The two trumpets of silver. What, are that, what does that represent, Pat? The two aspects of Israel's redemption. See verse 3? Uh, Here's the first trumpet. When they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to the, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they blow but with one trumpet... Then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. The first trumpet gathered the people. What does that represent? It represents Israel's physical redemption. God has already started regathering His people. You know that, right? From 1917 to 1948, God has been regathering a nation. From that Balfour Declaration in 1917 up until like uh, 1948 when they were declared a nation, to me that's God blowing that trumpet and starting to gather his people together and form a nation when there was no nation, when they were tried to be wiped off the face of the earth. One of the greatest testimonies that your Bible is true is the fact that the nation of Israel and the Jew even exists the genocides, the pogroms, and the violence that have been executed against that little nation, no other nation that would have undergone that would exist today. But God has regathered a nation. A thousand years ago, nobody knew it. Israel was gone. Israel? A hundred years, two hundred years ago, Israel? There was no Israel. Only if somebody read the Bible would they know there would ever be an Israel in the future. And the fact that God brought that nation together is proof that we're close. Because Israel is physically getting regathered, but the second part is still coming. Because even though they're together like Ezekiel 37, even though he's forming that, that body, there's no spirit in them yet. There's no spiritual redemption yet. There's still a, and Eli would tell me, he'd be the first one to tell me, a godless, atheist, superstitious, superstitious nation. But they're going to get saved one day. That spirit of God's going to be in there one day. That's the second trumpet. Look at verse number five. When ye blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When ye blow an alarm the second time, Then the camps that lie in the south shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. Look, the second trumpet would sound an alarm. That's Israel's spiritual gemption. That alarm was a signal of trouble, a picture of Jacob's trouble, a picture of them in the tribulation waiting for the Messiah to come and take away their sins. Romans 11 tells us all about it. What a great picture in Numbers 10. And then we get to Numbers 11. We're almost done for tonight. Numbers 11. Numbers 11 is the mixed multitude. The mixed multitude. And the mixed multitude teaches us... Now listen, you say, what are all these pictures for, Pat? Because the Bible's supposed to be instructive. It's not just the book of facts. The Bible says these things were written for our admonition. These things are written for our learning. You say, oh, I want to get to the promised land. I want to get to the place of blessing. Are you paying attention to the book of Numbers? There's so many lessons here. Here's one. Numbers 11 is about the ungodly influence on God's people. The ungodly world influencing God's people. You see the end of chapter 10? Look at chapter 10 and look at verse 29. And Moses said unto Hobab, the son of Raguel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you. Come thou with us, and we will do thee good, for the Lord hath spoken good concerning Israel. And he said unto him, I will not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. And he said, O leave us not. I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes." And it shall be, if thou go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto thee. Now, they're out there in the wilderness. And these are some Midianites. This is Moses' in-laws, right? Because he married a Midianite, right? Jethro was his father-in-law. Jethro the Midianite. Here's probably his brother-in-law, uh, Hobab, talking to him. So, in that multitude was not just Hebrews, right? Exodus twelve thirty-eight says, and a mixed multitude went up also with them. So not everybody was a follower of Jehovah that came out uh, after the Passover. Some people just wanted to get out of Egypt because they said, oh man, this ship is going down. Let's follow these Jews. They look like they know how to make money. Let's go follow them, right? They're going to make it, right? So they followed them out there. But Moses gets so turned upside down that Moses actually wanted the Midianite to guide them in the wilderness. You just read it, he says, be to us instead of I. Moses wants the ungodly people to be guiding him in the wilderness when God said, I want to guide you in the wilderness. And how often do we trade the wisdom of God and the eyes of God, which is the spirit of God in the scriptures, that he wants to be the guidance for us. We trade it for the ungodly people all around us and we take their advice over God's counsel. And Moses is doing that. And it gets worse. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, this mixed multitude is mixed in there. let That's what could happen when they get in the mix. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it. And his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. You see, the mixed multitude was complaining, and that group of people wanted to stay as far away from God as possible. You see, they'd set up that little tabernacle, and all the tribes would be around it. I guess if you really wanted to see God, you'd get close to the tabernacle. But if you didn't want to be anywhere near God, you got as far away from the tabernacle as you could. And it's the mixed multitude that were in the uttermost part of the camp. I hope you're not standing on the periphery, brethren. Because when you start standing on the periphery, you're halfway out the door. Keep reading, verse 4. Verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? You see what happens there? The mixed multitude wanted to stay as far from God as possible, and they wanted to satisfy their lusts. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And they got some of God's people messed up wanting to go back to Egypt. But in verse 16 and 17, you know what God does? I'm not going to read the verses. God picks him 70 leaders, just like Moses. He said, I'm going to take the spirit off of Moses, lowercase s, right? Not the Holy Spirit, but Moses' spirit. I'm going to find some leaders like Moses. You want to know something interesting? Jesus Christ picks 70 also. That's right. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus Christ picks 70 to go out two by two. So Moses had 70 and Jesus had 70 because Jesus was a prophet like unto Moses go to chapter 12, we're almost there chapter 12 chapter 12, ah Mo- Miriam and Aaron, brother and sister problems, here we go, 12 and Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman, Moses man, isn't the Bible up to date somebody complaining about your love interests, wow <laughs> Moses married an Ethiopian woman. You say, what's that a picture of? That is a picture of Jesus Christ taking a Gentile bride. Because Zipporah was a Gentile. She was a Hamite from Africa and that's who he chose to be his bride. And the Jews were like, what are you doing? Right? We don't roll with those people, but God was painting a picture because Jesus Christ would have a bride that would say, I am black, but comely, O oh, ye daughters of Jerusalem, in the Song of Solomon. So it makes sense that when Moses was rejected from his brethren, like Jesus, he takes a bride who was black. Jesus Christ takes a Gentile bride who was dirty with sin, and guess what? He cleaned us up real good. And that Song of Solomon, that bride says, I am black but comely, to typify who he redeemed for himself, to rule next to him. But look at verse number two. Look what they start doing. And they said to Miriam, Aaron, they must have gotten really indignant. I'm your older brother. And I'm your older sister. And they said, hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? Woo, you could just hear the pride in their voices. And the Lord heard it. <laughs> so Aaron and Miriam get upset and they challenge Moses' authority. And brethren, this is going to sound very self-serving, but that happens all the time in church. Who is he to say that? What's that? Who's what does that deacon think he is? What does that pastor think he is? And the minute something gets said or done that ruffles your feathers or goes away contrary to where you think it should go, all of a sudden it's like, well, he's not in charge. I'm, 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 I'm saved too. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's just a challenge to the leadership. They're challenging the leadership. It's like, oh, have, have, who, who, made, who died and made Moses God? God's like, I, 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 I put him in charge. Now, doctrinally, that's a picture of why Israel doesn't understand why their Messiah would mess with us. Why would the Jewish Messiah ever mess with a bunch of goy like us? They're like, I don't get it. That's our God. That's doctrinal. But but practically and inspirationally, it's how God's people give you grief when you do what God says. Newsflash, you do what God says, and the brethren might be some of the biggest pains in your butt. I'm just going to be honest with you. Because they're not living right and you're trying to live right and they want to try dragging you down to make themselves feel like they're on a higher plane. And that's just right there. Moses is just doing something that might have been odd to them, but he's doing what God told him to do and the brethren that were closest to him that were literally his flesh and blood are given homogedum, right? That's a spiritual word, right? Look at verse four, great part of verse four. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and to Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out, ye three. (laughs) This is scary, man. Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Now you got to just, if you're Miriam and Aaron, you probably got a trail behind you because you wet your (laughs) pants. I mean, if God shows up and says, Hey, I want to talk to you. Like, "Mm -hmm." you're coming in real low. All right? Where was I? Uh, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. So in the Old Testament, prophets saw visions, they saw dreams. But he says in verse 7, My servant Moses is not so. He's special. Who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth. Even apparently. Meaning I appear to him. And not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. You see, Moses had a special relationship because Moses saw the similitude of God. You see that word apparently? It's an appearance of God. He saw the angel of the Lord. That's Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I'll show you some verses. Go to Acts chapter 7. I'm almost done, so I'm going to give you a couple of verses here. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven. Acts chapter seven, verse thirty-seven. Acts seven, verse thirty-seven. <clears throat> Speaking about the old testament it says, this is that Moses, Acts seven, thirty-seven Said unto the, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he, meaning Moses, that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Moses saw an appearance of God, the angel of God in the wilderness. God says, Moses saw my angel in Mount Sinai. Didn't mean it was like, oh, hey, Fred, go talk to Moses. No, he appeared himself a similitude, and I spoke to him apparently in an appearance his angel. You could take the word angel and almost substitute the word appearance and they make the same sense in the Bible, right? When Peter gets let out of prison in Acts chapter 12, they say, oh, it must be his angel, but it was an appearance of Peter, right? Uh, Go to John chapter one. Now let me show you a supposed contradiction in your Bible. John one. John one, verse 18. People start to sound smart. And when somebody starts sounding smart, you know they're stupid. <laughs> Spiritually stupid. John 1.18, the Bible says, no man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. And then God said, I spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. See, that's a contradiction. I spoke to him. The Bible says he spoke to him face to face. Spoke to him mouth to mouth. Then the Bible says, no man has seen God at any time. How do you reconcile it? Because Nobody saw God as he truly is. Would have melted Moses into like smithereens. If you see God as he truly is, you must be born again to see God as he truly is. Because in your physical body right now, if you were in the presence of God, you'd melt. It would be like in the presence of a thousand nuclear bombs. You can't get close to the sun. You can't even look at the sun. And you're 93 million miles away. You're going to stand in the presence of the one who made the sun? No, God has to do something supernatural and give you a brand new body so you could stand to be in His presence. So no man has seen God at any time yet. Nobody has seen God as He truly is, but they've seen His image. They've seen His the similitude. They've seen His angel. They've seen Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, right there, verse 18, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Go to Exodus 33. Good Exodus 33. That's an important distinction. Make it any sense so far? All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it home in a second. We're going to park in Numbers and then finish right there. Exodus 33, verse 11. It's the only smart thing I did this month was not try to do this whole book in one night. Exodus 33, 11. Exodus 33, 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face his angel, as a man speaketh unto his friend. Now go back to Numbers chapter 12, and let me show you how God finishes that statement. Numbers 12, verse 8. God's saying, Moses is special. I appear to him in a similitude. My angel shows up, and I speak to him face to face, mouth to mouth. And then he says at the end of verse 8, because Moses is special, wherefore... Then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses. Yikes. He says that this guy is special and he gets special attention from me and he gets a special revelation of me. You best be careful before you step to him and have beef with him and start pulling him down like everybody else. And God's showing up to say, Hey guys, I don't need you Miriam and you Aaron to correct my servant. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. He's my man. He was God's man. And he keeps reading. He says there in verse 9, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed, and the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. And behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. That to me is very instructive because the Lord smote Miriam with leprosy. Be careful what you complain about. They said, oh, Moses... You married a black woman. Oh, you're afraid of blackness? I want to make you white. I'll make you white as snow, but it'll be leprosy. I think that's just God's sense of humor, right? This cracks me up anyway. Now let's go to Numbers 13. We'll finish in Numbers 13 and 14. Numbers 13 and 14 is a great place to end tonight. It's a challenging spot. It is the story of Caleb, Joshua, and the evil report. And here we have the evil report of the 10 spies. They send the 10 spies up And we know two of them have enough faith to take the land and the ten of them bring back an evil report. And what a sad, sad way to end this part of the book of Numbers here, at least to end our study tonight. Because only two men out of almost four million people, right? there were two million probably men, but if you took women and children, there might have been many million people there and only two people out of all that multitude trusted God enough to kill the giants and give them what he promised and that's sad that's a sad sad picture of the laodicean church the laodicean church has no joshua's and has no caleb's it has no joshua you know joshua is we got a josh i'm glad we got a josh right (laughs) taylor's glad too i see that smile right no joshua no joshua is joshua is jesus And the Laodicean church has no Joshua because they got Jesus on the outside knocking to get in. The Laodicean church has no Jesus. Oh, my brethren, I'm going to get in trouble for this. I watched a a video of somebody I know doing their church service, and God wasn't anywhere in that meeting. They said His name. I think they sang some songs that mentioned words that relate to Him. But the Holy Spirit, I sat there like this, feeling sorry for the people watching it. I said to myself, this is why Christianity is a hot, sick mess. Because they're getting fed like, it wasn't even breadcrumbs. It was like, dung would have tasted better than that. At least you get some nutrients out of it. Grow a flower. This was like, absolutely devoid of anything spiritual. It was like, huh? And that's the way you see in church. A lot of activity, people are banging stuff, making noise, singing, mention Jesus' name, and he is not within earshot of most of the stuff that is so-called Christian today. There's no Joshua's. You know what there's no? There's no Caleb's. You know what Caleb means? Faithful. Amen. Wholehearted. There's no Caleb's anymore. Christians are a bunch of turncoats. Christians are a bunch of willy-nilly Uh, you know, fair-weather friends to God. God says, where are the Calebs? You got no Joshua, no Jesus, and you got no Caleb. Because you got no Joshua, no Jesus, that's why you got no Caleb. You got nobody with any heart, any zeal, any faith, any confidence. Caleb said, let's go. Everybody else is like, let's go to Starbucks. Right? God says, let's go get everything we got for them. If you had Starbucks tonight, I mean, no offense. (laughs) All right? Just it came out of my mouth. But you know what Colossians 3.23 says? and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily. That was written to the Laodicean church. He said, get some heart into it. There's no heart. Every church needs more Josh and Caleb's. We need more Josh and Caleb's that can point us to God and have enough zeal to get us over the hump, get us into the promised land. You see 1325? You see what happens? Here's what the evil report was, 1325. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, We came unto the land where thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Man, it was amazing, right? Raw milk, all you raw milk people, right? The the grapes are huge. The honey was like right out of the hive thing right the comb right and uh they even have those little things to scoop it out i guess grew on the ground and he says nevertheless the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and every very great and moreover we saw the children of Anak there you know what the people that are out of fellowship with god they only saw the obstacles man God kept his bargain. He said it would be a land flowing of milk and honey. And it was a land flowing of milk and honey. And he said, go get it. And they're like, oh, but there's all these big guys there and they scare me. You know what? I said, Jaleb, you know what Caleb and Joshua saw? Caleb and Joshua didn't see obstacles, they saw opportunity. See verse 30? See verse 30? And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Why? Because God promised it us. This is God we're talking about. Man, you go up against something in your life and God has told you something. Don't look at the circumstances. Only see the obstacles as an opportunity for God to show himself strong. Because if you could do it, you wouldn't need God. But if you look at this multitude in front of you and say, I don't know how we're going to get over these giants, God says, great, I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Right? So don't see the obstacles. See the opportunities. That's what Caleb and Joshua did. And brethren, on your way to your promised land, God's going to bring you up against giants. He's not going to make it easy. He wants to see if you're going to fight or you're going to flee. And in verse 31, the Bible says, But the men that went up with them said, We be not able to go up against the people. No kidding. For they are stronger than we. I know. And they brought up an evil report. God says a lack of faith is evil of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which came of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. The question is, God's going to put giants in your way. How will you respond? That's going to be your watershed moment, by the way. God gives you a little honeymoon and then He puts a giant in your way. And that giant in your way is a watershed moment to see what you're going to do when you come face to face with a giant. you Are going to be Caleb and Joshua or are you going to be like those evil reporters? Don't lose faith. Somebody said one time, fear knocked at the door, faith answered, and fear was gone. Nobody was there. So keep the faith only way into the promised land. Let's pray. Thank you for your attention tonight. We'll finish it next time we do this. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you. We praise you. What great illustrations, Lord, you gave us. Nobody gave this to us, Lord. You gave this to us. Your Holy Spirit put these there. Uh, Men of God have picked them out, Lord, and laid them out for us to learn and study and add our own to, to sense to them, Father. But I just, I stand in awe of your word, Father. You promised us so much. Help us to cash those promises, Lord, as far as we could take them, Lord. Let us not be uh, weary in well-doing, Father. And In due season we shall reap if we faint not. Help us, Lord, to get all you have for us to get and be all you want us to be if we just follow your pl- plan and your pattern and your blueprint. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. amen.